All right, you guys see me, right? Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. So good morning, everyone. Uh, happy New Year's. And uh, yeah, so um, I want to begin just with this question. And uh, I want you to just give it a few seconds to think about it, okay? But you don't have to blurt out the answers or write anything. Uh, and, uh, and spouses don't answer this for each other, okay? Here's a question I want to begin with. In 2020, I was too caught up in what? What would you say were things that you were really too much caught up in? Um, I hope it can at least something comes to your mind. Um, but you know, what's uh, interesting about this question is that, that you know, just the way that we are, sometimes you know, we don't really uh, 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 realize what we're caught up in until something happens. Right. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's, as an example, I remember um, this is a, I guess how many years ago? Um, when Noah was four, so about 14 years ago, um, uh, my son was in a like a Christian preschool, and uh, they did an exercise for Father's Day. You know, and question the teachers asked questions uh, to their children, and then they recorded down the answers and, and sent it back to the parents. And the question was, one of the question was, what does your father do? And, uh, and Noah drew a picture. And in the picture, he drew like a stick figure of a guy. And, and it was me. And my, but my right hand was really big. And it was kind of rectangular in shape. So I'm thinking, what is that, you know? And then the teachers asked me, so what does your father do? And, and uh, Noah's reply was, my father plays on the computer all day. Right? And, uh, and so what he did was uh, he drew my laptop that was stuck to my hand, you know? And uh, I thought it was kind of funny, but then when I thought about it, I realized uh, that uh, I was spending way too much time. I was caught up uh, on my computer, on my laptop. Now, to be honest, I, you know, I, I was a, I'm a programmer and I was working from home. So I could say, yeah, I was spending a lot of time, you know, my part of my day was just, you know, on my computer all the time. And no, I just assumed that I was playing video games, you know, <laughs> that he plays games all day. But the more I thought about it, I realized, wait a minute. I think beyond work, Noah actually saw something. He caught me, right? Caught up. Because I was spending way too much time on the computer and not enough time with him. And, uh, and, and you know, it took some time for me to catch that. And, uh, and that. and I realized that that was actually a message from the Lord. That God in his kindness. You know, God sometimes, I mean, actually sometimes, most of the time he doesn't shop from the sky. But he gives us these subtle messages. And I almost missed it, but thankfully I caught, caught it. Now I can't tell you that I, uh, you know, learned it and then, you know, I, I was fixed from that point on. But, but it really did catch my attention, and it revealed what I was caught up in. Now something similar happened to me um, about a month ago uh, at my work, this place where I'm working. And uh, people ask me all the time, "Hey, is your background is that real or Zoom?" I, I think you saw the janitor just walking through. This is real. It's a great place. I work in a co-working place. And uh, uh, oh, I got to admit, Christy. Okay, um, and people always talk about this yellow, this light over my head. That's a halo. I said, like, yeah, it looked like you were saying you have halo over your head. And I used to kind of like that. And then something happened that totally took the halo out of my head. So what happened was I was in a Zoom meeting with my with my teammates. And, and keep in mind that this is kind of a I work for a Christian organization, and uh, and you know I'm I'm kind of new to the team. So I was making this presentation, and at the end of the presentation. Um, you know, uh, so I was presenting my screen like I, I was doing now, and, and uh, you know, I, I stopped speaking, and, and we, you know, and the meeting continued to another topic, 
And so, you know, I was kind of listening and, you know, it wasn't really relevant to my job. So I just, I didn't even know I did this. I just accidentally, you know, I just, my finger wandered over to my mouse and I clicked a button and the button was my stock uh, app. And so all of a sudden, all my stock, stocks and my stock apps just blared up in front of everybody. I didn't realize that, um, uh, that I was uh, still showing my screen. And uh, it took a while, but one of my colleagues, you know, texted me uh, and he said, hey, Han, you're, showing, you're, you're, you're still showing your screen. And I still didn't catch that because I was caught up in looking at my stock, you know? Um, and then my friend did something very gracious. I'm so glad they were so gracious. He just all of a sudden shared his desktop to cover up for my sin. And uh, I was just really touched by that. And that kind of haunted me for a few days because it was totally embarrassing, to be honest, to be so exposed. But once again, as I thought about it, I realized the Lord was kind to me. He was exposing the fact that I was way too caught up in, in my stocks, in my retirement. Yeah. And the more I thought about it, it just really, um, this happened recently, and it just helped me to realize that subtly that, that sin was entering into my life in an unhealthy way, and I wasn't even aware of it. Um, as I was preparing for this message, I actually heard a great uh, video by, by Tim Keller. And he talks about sin, and he talks about, you know, the first time we really, I mean, the second time, the first time we experienced sin was Genesis chapter 3. In chapter 4, it was a very insightful comment, insightful thing that happened. You know, at, uh, so right after they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, um, Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel, uh, present an offering to the Lord. The Lord showed favor to Cain, um, Abel's, but not Cain's. So Cain grows angry. Um, he, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 4, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? See, God comes to get his attention once again. Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and here's the key, key insight into sin. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And Tim Keller points out the word crouch means that you know, animals crouch ready to pounce you. And the way, reason why they crouch is, is to keep them out of your sight. You see, sin is great at hiding itself. And you don't even realize it until it is ready to pounce you. And, you know, and despite this great warning from the Lord, we know what happens. Cain, Cain ignores it, and he, he gets overcome by his anger and his sin, and he ends up killing his brother. And so goes the rest of history. So I suggest that if you think about this question, especially from sin angle, I was too caught up in what? Most likely you won't even get that in the first try. You may get it if you ask your spouses or if you ask your children, because they see, they see us all the time. But even more so, the Lord may interrupt. And so my, my, uh, as I, uh, I want to encourage you with, uh, with uh, looking at uh, the story in the scriptures that teaches us both what it means to be caught up, not only in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. All right, let me go on. So actually, oh, I'm sorry, one more, one more thought. Uh, you know, there's uh, this phrase that's very famous. Um, I'm, I was a physics major. It is, is by, uh, by, um, Aristotle, he says, nature abhors vacuum. And this is one of those things that's been debated. And you know what? It's Aristotle said it about, about over 2,500 years ago, and it still proves true. And it proves true not only in the physical realm, 
but it actually is true in the spiritual realm. And here's what Jesus said in, in Luke 11. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, I missed it. Okay. Oh, I forgot to say it. Okay. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 11. Jesus speaks about, about a, a man who's possessed by a demon. So the demon is cleansed from him. And Jesus says then for a while, you know, his house is, you know, this house is orderly. The, the, the demon is left, uh, has left. The house is orderly. Everything is in shape. But then the demons, you know, they wander around and they say, hey, I see this house is empty. So he comes in with seven other demons and the situation is worse than it was before. I forgot to put that in there. But what's uh, important about this imagery is that, that just as in nature, in our spiritual nature, that applies to us personally, but also in any groups, that nature does abhor vacuum. That if we are not filled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, something else much worse will possess us. Okay? And so what is it? So Jesus says before the parable, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then he goes on to explain but what he meant by this, uh, talking about the demon possessing a house, he says, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So here's the application what Jesus is saying, that until, unless our minds and our souls are occupied by his words and we're obeying it, then we're in danger. There's nothing, no such thing as spiritual neutrality. You know, if, if you're not possessed by the Spirit, if you're not filled with the Word of God, something much worse will fill it. Put it in other words, if you're not caught up in the words of God, if you're not caught up by Jesus, something else will catch us and something else will occupy us. Now, the point of the message is not this. It's actually something much more positive to show you what happens when someone is caught by Jesus and is caught up in Jesus. And the story comes from John chapter 7, verses 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. I titled this, uh, Being Caught Was the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Me. This is actually a quote uh, from a friend, and I'll talk about it a little bit later. But here's the story. So in John chapter 7, 53, 8, 11, begins like this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let me just begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, ah, it is really difficult to deal with this, our own hearts. Um, that, that is a, still a mystery to us. And Satan, who's so wily and so experienced in tempting us and causing us to fall. 
We pray, O oh Lord, that as we look at this story uh, one more time, that you would open up our eyes and that you would totally occupy our hearts and our minds, not only for this next 15, 20, 30 minutes, but for the, but the, but for the rest of our lives, that we will be caught up in Jesus and his word and his ministry. It is in his name that we ask. Amen. Um, as many of you guys know, the, um, if you read the NIV, and I read it from the NIV, there's actually something in parentheses before that. It says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 811, what we just read. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7, 36, John 2, 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. If you actually Google this passage, what you'll find most of them is not about, not sermons on this or teachings on this, but the controversy about its position in the book of John. Uh, almost universally, all scholars agree that this passage that we just read, which is probably one of the most well-known passages of the scripture, is not, was probably not part of, originally part of the book of John. And I was kind of, you know, when I first heard about that, I was really bothered by that. And, but then there are many reasons, both external evidence and internal evidence. And one of the easiest way you can verify for yourself is that if you just take out this section and read what goes before and after, the past, but it just goes right along. There's no interruption. That's when it convinced me, oh, yeah, it probably wasn't there. But as you do more research, what's interesting is that, that even though many old, ancient, our best ancient manuscript of scripture does not contain it, they all contain little indications that something was there, but they knew that it was, had to be taken out. Now, what's even further interesting is that it doesn't matter, even among liberal scholars, nobody doubts that this story is genuine. What everyone doubts is whether it was part of the book of John or any other part of the scriptures. So to me, what's really fascinating is this. I'm kind of a cup is half you know, full kind of a guy. What this tells me is this. For whatever reason, this particular story was not being able to fit into the, any of the four gospels, including book of Luke or book of John. But it was so important. Even though it didn't fit into any of the specific books of the Bible, it had to be in the Bible. Personally, I think the best place where this belongs is, uh, is John 21, 25, which some of you think, wait a minute, what's in John 21, 25? It's the end of John, right? So I think that person described the right thing. They included the four gospels and they added this little story at the end of the four gospels as if the, the story that really puts the whole gospels in the right kind of setting and, and the final closing of the four gospels is the story. And that's the way I like to think about it. And so I, as we go into it, I really suggest that, that, that you take the time to think about the story because I believe that in this story contains basically the entire story of Jesus and the good news in a very condensed form. You know, just how powerful the story is, is evidenced by the fact that even though it was not part of the older manuscripts, if you read Christians going back to the uh, second century, many of the Christian writers talked about the story even though it wasn't officially part of the canon because of its impact. And more near to me, um, I read in a place, and I, I know this by both from research and by my own experience, that this story is probably the single most story that resonates with, with, with the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Every Muslim I've ever talked to, when you tell the story, they're amazed and they're attracted to it and plays a huge role in people coming to Christ. So just for that reason alone, I really uh, commend this story to you. Now, as to reason why 
it was left out of so many texts. I think Augustine put it the best in, in the fourth century. He says, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. There's two important facts. The reason why so many Christians were bothered by the story is that it seems like Jesus doesn't care about sin. And they were afraid. Wait a minute. If I just read this story, Jesus doesn't care about her adultery. She let, he, he lets her go unpunished. Well, then, every, then I can sin. That's what people are afraid of. And in fact, if you look at this story, it's actually quoted often, or if not the whole story, but by the key line, let him who has no sins cast the first stone. That's actually quite popular among non-Christians to criticize as Christians. Saying, why, what, you know, why do you talk about all these sins? Why are you judging people? What, what the ancient, uh, some of the ancient uh, uh, Christian writers and the modern audience forget is the last part what he says, that Jesus tells her, sin no more. That he wasn't giving permission to sin. Instead, what Jesus was doing was saving somebody in their sin. Now, with that in mind, I want to continue on, okay? So, I'm going to quote, uh, begin by um, just quoting from uh, uh, this lady, Rosario Butterfield. And if you're in my house church, and if you're part of my uh, uh, Livingstone Bible study, you've heard her name. Um, it's, uh, this has been one of my, the, the most biggest blessings in the last couple of years, uh, just discovering about this lady and her life story and her books. Now, here's what she says about sin. She says, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Now, this is why when you consider what is the thing that really caught, caught, that, that caught me too much, right? It's really hard to answer that because it seems so normal to me. You know, um, I, I suggest for me, this is one of the most difficult aspects of my marriage. The reason why my wife and I fight all the time is because of this. I do say something, I say something. And to her, it's sin. To me, it doesn't feel like sin. And my mind immediately starts making excuses for it. Well, I acted this way because you said this or you triggered me. or because It's just amazing. For 20 years, we've been having the same, same things happening. And vice versa. My biggest frustration is that my wife cannot see her own sins as I define it. This is a serious issue. And this is a problem of the biggest hindrance for spiritual progress is that sin does never feels like sin to me unless it gets really blown up. Like in the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. May God gives us grace and open our eyes. And sometimes opening our eyes takes something drastic as it happens in the story of this woman who was caught in adultery. Before we talk about her, let's look at the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who are involved in the story, because they're the ones who are most blind to their own sins. And they're the ones who, who instigate the story. Um, who are these people? Well, they're supposedly the leader of the nation. They were the religious elites. They were the most faithful, and they were the ones who were teaching the law to the nation. Here's what Jesus says about them in Luke chapter 15. He calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far 
from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Then the disciples came to him and asked him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. What do you find the teachers of the law and the Pharisees? May I suggest that they are in our congregations, in the church. I think Pastor Paul can attest, for me too, one of the, the scariest things in the scripture are passages like me, those who have a spiritual responsibility. That if in our zeal, like the Pharisees, that we actually miss the sins in our lives, we become blind guides. And we end up worshiping God in vain and leading others to worship God in vain. This is how serious this is. So what were they doing? See, they were blind to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That he was bringing true interpretation of scripture. And he was showing them again and again and again through his teaching. And, and, and through his authority and power over demons and over diseases. That he was the sent one from God. In fact, that he was God who came to them in the flesh. But rather than welcoming him, they were so caught up in their spiritual blindness and their pride and their jealousy that they decided to kill him. They were blind guides who not only endangered themselves, but endangered the people who actually followed them as well. And so in the story here, they are trying to figure out a way to entrap Jesus. They want to catch Jesus. So they presented this scheme they knew that, I mean, they actually wanted to arrest Jesus right away, but they didn't dare to do that because Jesus had such popularity among people because of the power and the grace of his teaching. So what they wanted to do was pretty simple. They wanted to, first of all, prove that Jesus was a sinner, not a true prophet. And the reason why they did that again was to justify themselves and their position. And they wanted to prove that Jesus was a sinner by trying to prove that he's against Moses and the law. That's why they caught a woman who was in adultery and, and presented her because they knew that Jesus would not have condoned the stoning of such a woman because of the mercy and the grace that he showed sinners. And so they knew that, that if Jesus did what he normally he would have done, then they can quickly say, look, Jesus is actually against Moses. He's a traitor and he is uh, he's a false teacher and we need to punish him. That was one. Now, if Jesus actually says, no, no, no. Okay, Moses said stone her, so let her, let her be stoned. Then all of a sudden, he faces two consequences. One, the crowd would no longer be so attracted to him because then he would be just like the rest of the teachers. And he would affirm the teachers of the laws and the Pharisees and their position. So the Pharisees come out on the top again. Or third, if he actually says to stone her, then they can easily accuse Jesus to the Roman authorities because only the Roman authorities have the right to, uh, right, to execute, uh, right to execute. And they would say, you see, Jesus is leading a rebellion and is going against the Roman law. That was a trap that they were setting for Jesus. Now, so in their trap, they find the perfect device. The, uh, uh, and, and, and it is this women, right? So they had this plan already. And they look for what, you know, what sometimes we call a stooge, right? Somebody they could use. And they knew that they already concocted this scenario. And uh, this, this woman was probably somebody who was known to them or at least infamous. 
I don't think they were looking for uh, to, to catch a woman in adultery. They actually found a woman that they knew, and they captured her. So what was she to, to, uh, uh, to them, to the teachers and the Pharisees? Uh, when, uh, just listen to the words. As in, the law of Moses, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. See, it's not that they just looked at her as a tool in their plot against Jesus. They just totally dismissed her as such women, such sinner. She was nothing in their eyes, right? She was nobody, nobody in their eyes. Now, to Jesus, who, who was she? It's actually revealed by his answer. And, and the, the word that really sticks out is, the, it's, at first we escape it. When Jesus later strings up and asks her, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? They realize that the word women here, in Greek, it literally means women, but there's so much more nuance, right? And the nuance is indicated by this. The two other times that Jesus calls somebody and addresses somebody with the same word women, some of you may know. First time is in John chapter 2, when Jesus at the wedding of Cana talks to his own mother Mary and calls her women, right? And the other time is at the, uh, near the end of John on his, uh, on his uh, resurrection, right? And Pastor, Pastor for nodding his head because he taught us this. When, he, when, when Mary uh, Magdalene is coming to bury Jesus and she's wondering where Jesus is, Jesus, on the way to the Father, stops to talk to Mary and let her know that he's alive. And when, when uh, uh, he sees her, he calls her woman. Same word. So it's a w- word of tenderness, of respect. You know? I'm pretty sure this, this woman called in adultery have never been addressed like this before. And that just shows you how Jesus views such people, such sinners. He actually sees them as, as creating the image of God. He knows her past. He knows everything about her far more than what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law knows. But in spite of his, all his intimate knowledge of her failures, Jesus knows who she is. She also knows that there's no such thing as a perfectly evil person that it wasn't that she was just caught in adultery, that she probably was caught in all kinds of other sins, but not only the sins of her own making, she was probably also a victim. Who knows what happened? I remember uh, uh, many years ago, about 20, uh, 25 years ago, you know, I was at a student missions conference, and I had a roommate uh, at Urbana Missions Conference. It was an older guy, and I was thinking, wait a minute, this is a college missions conference. What is this older guy doing here? As I got to know him, it was one of the most incredible encounters of my life. He started talking to me, and he told me about this story one day in New Jersey. He was driving on a highway, middle, late at night, it was pouring outside. He sees a woman whose car was stuck, you know, who's, uh, on the side of a highway. So, you know, he stopped to help her, and realizing that, that her car wasn't working, he invited her into, uh, into his car and uh, was taking her to the place where she wanted to go. As you're driving, she turned to him and said this. I mean, she actually she propositioned him. She was a prostitute. He, he told me, as he was telling the story, it's like, uh-oh, what's going to happen, right? He said, when he heard her, he stopped, stopped his car and turned to her and said, this is what he says, I've never known a person in your situation who hasn't been hurt. Tell me about your story. She broke down and started telling her her whole story of her abuse from her parents down to her current boyfriend, her pimp, the whole story. 
And the rest of the story is how he and his wife started helping this lady step by step. Unfortunately, it ended up in a tragedy. The boyfriend or the pimp literally ran her over and killed her. But I remember when I heard the story, I was so struck by two things. The how he was able to, in that kind of a circumstance, I mean, the best I could have conjured up is just kick her out of the car and run away. And there's a lot of the worst things that could have happened if I were in that position. How he was able to see her like that just amazed me. And that spoke to me about his maturity in Christ and how he had begun to acquire Christ-like eyes and Christ-like heart to the lost and to the sinners among us. And so Jesus calls her dear woman and he talks to her. And then these words of grace that come from out of his mouth, he alone was the one who could have killed her. Why? Not because she was sinless. Actually, the story actually tells us. You see, one of the most often questions about this passage is it says that twice it mentions that Jesus was stooping on, she, she stooped on the ground and was writing something with his finger. And the question is, what was Jesus writing? What was Jesus writing? Actually, Augustine tells us the best answer again. The important thing is not what he was writing. Uh, uh, otherwise, the scripture would have told us what he was writing. The important thing is this, that he was writing with his finger. Because in the entire Bible, there's only three times when it's recorded that someone was writing with their finger. The last time is Jesus. The first time was when Moses, when God wrote with his finger, Moses says, the Ten Commandments. And the second time is in, 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 the, in, the, in the book of Daniel, when God appealed to Belshazzar, the, the king who was feasting and you know, blaspheming, and, and this hand appeared on his temple and wrote mini, mini tekel, pronouncing judgment against this king and his kingdom. So what does it mean that Jesus was writing what it means is that he showed Jesus as the lawgiver, as God himself, who from the creation gave us moral and physical laws. So Jesus himself was the only one who could pass the judgment on her. And what does he do? He said, neither do I condemn you. And he reveals why he said this. Because his interest is this, not in condemning her, but in saving her. He says, go now and leave the life of sin. Jesus physically saves her from death so that Jesus can save her from her sins. That's how serious Jesus is about our sins. Now, the best explication of exactly what went behind the scenes is actually earlier in the book of John, John chapter 3. Actually, before I go there, there's actually one more big point. The, the amazing thing about her is that she wasn't the only one who was caught. Actually, she was caught by Jesus, but she wasn't the only one. Everyone else in the story, the teachers and the Pharisees were also caught by Jesus. The difference is this, she's the only one who stayed caught. Here's what I mean. Teachers and the Pharisees. So when he said, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, he says, at, and again, he stoops down and wrote on the ground posturing himself as the legislator, as, as God. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. So what does this mean? You see, Jesus caught these, all of these people. He convicted them of their sins. And they knew, they thought they were going to catch Jesus. Jesus caught them. But again, 
Jesus didn't catch them to embarrass them. Jesus didn't catch them to accuse them. Jesus caught them for the same reason that he caught the women, because he wanted to save them from their sins. See, these people missed the greatest opportunity. They were caught up in their pride. They're caught up in their hatred. And Jesus catches them in their sin to save them. But when they felt the convicting power of Jesus' words, what did they do? They walked away. They left Jesus. And what they missed out was this amazing words of grace that transformed the dear woman. If any of these people had stayed behind, I'm convinced that they would have also been transformed and also would have heard these gracious words that would become the center stone of their life and they would have lifted up the blindness from their eyes. Maybe some of them did later point in their life, but at this point, none of them stuck around. None of them stayed caught by Jesus, except this woman, this dear woman. And here's what happens behind the story. This is it's actually the, behind the story of John 3.16. All of us know John 3.16, but I think many of us don't know the rest of the story. But this is the perfect explanation of the background to the story. For God so loved the world, we know that he gave his only one and only son, but that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You see, Jesus somehow doesn't say, but this woman believed in Jesus. That's why she stuck around. And because she believed in him, Jesus declares to her, neither do I condemn you. And she had the privilege of hearing those words that frees her in person because she stuck around. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. That's the rest of them. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. All those people left Jesus because of their fear. They were convicted for momentarily. Jesus caught them, but they escaped his grasp because they were fearing exposure to the sin. This woman had no choice. Her sins were already exposed. Maybe that made it easier for her to stick around. But without a doubt, it was her faith. Something triggered in her heart, and Jesus, who sees the hearts of people in her faith, declares to her your sins, you are not condemned, because Jesus sees her faith. But whoever lives by the truth like this woman comes into the light, and I would add stays in the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. She stands literally in the sight of God, and she's not afraid of her exposure. This is so true. I think the most dangerous people on the planet of the earth are people who are pretty good, pretty moral, pretty righteous, who see themselves as being righteous and who are not exposed, whether probably intentionally or because they're so good, their sins are not exposed to them or to the world. So they live this fiction that they're all right in the eyes of God. And and the few times that the Lord tries to break through their self-pride and their blindness, they instantly resist it and put up all their righteous excuses and righteous deeds in front of the convicting words of Jesus. There's no wonder that so many of the great people who have just totally been consumed by Jesus and lives are transferred are people who are obvious sinners. That's what happened to me. My, my sins were completely exposed when I attempted suicide at 20. I remember thinking when I woke up from the hospital, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to me now? The whole school will know. Everyone will know what, what happened. 
And at first I was so ashamed by what happened. But then in a moment I realized, oh my goodness, this is the most freeing thing that's ever happened. All my deeds are exposed now. All my weaknesses, all my sins are exposed. And I had to start all over again. And by God's grace, Jesus met me when I was so downcast. And I was no longer had to hide behind a false facade of success and immorality. I was completely exposed. For those of you experienced that, you guys know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, pray that the Lord will lift up your blindness if that hasn't already happened to you. That is the most gracious thing. You may fear it like it is the, the worst thing ever, but it is the, trust me, it is the best thing ever when your sins are exposed to a gracious and merciful God like Jesus. This woman, um, Rosaria Butterfield, I, I really encourage you guys to just Google her name on YouTube. You'll find great talks by her. There's even a Wikipedia article about her. She was in 1990s. She was actually a tenured professor of, 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 of English and, and, uh, and, uh, and queer studies, LGBTQ, right, at Syracuse University. She herself was lesbian and, and a great writer and a great professor in her field. She actually, um, so she wrote this article in her, in her, in her local newspaper about the, these dangerous Christian right, you know. And, and, and somebody responded to her, a guy named Fred Smith, a pastor at a church nearby her house. And, and, her, and, and the way he engaged her was so gracious and so kind. She was like, she took notice of that. And, and uh, because of the popularity of her article denouncing the Christian right, the book publisher gave her a, a contract to work and, on writing a fuller book. And so she said, okay, well, I'll talk to this guy, Fred Smith, just to find out what more of the, what the enemy are thinking, how they think and what they do so I can write about them in my book. So she begins to correspond with him, and then he invites her to his house, and, and lo and behold, every week she becomes part of this small, what, what she calls Bible study, we would call, her, we'd call it a house church, you know, for two years. So she starts just participating, she reads the Bible seven times, starts to eat with them, and she starts to sing with them. Little by little, the Bible begins to infiltrate her mind, and it took a while, but one day, she came to the Lord. And this is what she says. When the Lord entered my world, I experienced that gospel-ignited, expulsive power of a new affection, to quote the title of Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon. The new affection was not heterosexuality, but Jesus, my Jesus, my friend and Savior. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us the story of the, re the rest of the story of this woman caught in adultery, but I have no doubt this is her story because this has been replicated not only by Rosaria, but many others like her who converts her, uh, who, who got Jesus who converts us out of unbelief. And the reason why we convert is because we experience this Jesus, my Jesus, my friend and Savior, who treats us with so much grace in our lives. That's why we get converted. And that's the rest of the story. That's not the only story. As you know, that kind of ex personal exposure to Jesus and experience with Jesus doesn't just stay in our hearts. It, it just continues to reverberate. In the book that I, uh, that I gave out many, to many of my friends this, this uh, winter break, um, you know, she, uh, uh, she uh, um, talks about, in, in chapter 7 of the book, her relationship with her mother. And, you know, I know mother-daughter relationships are pretty complicated, but this is one of the most toxic relationships you could imagine. Here's the good news. You, and I, forgive me if I tell the story. Two days before her mother died, she comes to Christ. 
kicking and screaming to the very end. And at the end of her story, this is what Rosaria says about her. It says, my conversion left my, oh, I'm sorry. This is the other story, I'm sorry. My conversion left my former friends and family thinking I was loony to the core. How could I leave a worldview that was open, welcoming, inclusive for one that believes in original sin, values the law of God, seeks conversion into a born-again constitution, believes in the truthful ontology of God's word as found in the Bible, claims the exclusivity of Christ for salvation and purports the redemptive quality of suffering. Only one reason. I love this. Because Jesus is real and risen Lord because he claimed me for himself. This is what genuine conversion does to people. And here's what it did to her mother. My mother's salvation, you listen to the story, listen to her quote. My mother's salvation not only changed her future. So yeah, I always thought of salvation as like, yeah, it doesn't matter how many years of sin that you live. Once you're saved, your future is secure. Your future is with God forever, right? So it changes our future. But here's what she says, but it changed our past as well. Not just her mother's past, but this 50 years of contentious love-hate relationship with her, with her mother. It changed entire past. All the gory details of our past now lives under the heel of God's providential hand. Each heartache, a kiss from the Lord. A lifetime of feeling like I will never measure up. Melted into the tapestry of persevering faith. Hope heals. Faith remakes us. It really, really does. And this is amazing that the woman caught in adultery is no longer just about all the her failures and the failures of the people around her and the sins done against her and the sins that she committed. That in the moment she, by faith, put her faith in Jesus Christ and when, he encounter, when she encounters him, her entire past is all of a sudden changed. That her past is no longer covered in shame. Her past is the very groundwork of praise, not to her sins, but to the Lord who saved her from her sin. One of the surest signs, again, of true conversion is people no longer speak about their past they no longer try to hide it and speak about it in shame. They can declare it to the world. Because what reveals about what is revealed from their stories is not their failure, which they no longer care about. It's the amazing grace of God that covered over their sins. And God's magnificent grace that is big enough and wide enough and deep enough to encompass every sin imaginable, including ours. Here's my encouragement in 2021 for all of us. My first encouragement is let's get caught by Jesus. Sin is slippery. I have no doubt in our midst, starting with our own children, there are many that have never been caught by Jesus. That we come to church, we do all the righteous deeds, and we've never, ever confronted our own sins. We're afraid of exposure to our sins. If you're still afraid of what people in the church may find out about you, that's a sure sign that you have not been caught by Jesus. I'm not saying this to accuse you or to condemn you, but to invite you, hopefully, as you think about the story of what freedom lies when we get caught by Jesus in his mercy and his grace. And here's my second encouragement. Let's get stay caught. There are many of us that come to church. We haven't, we're kind of caught by Jesus, and we keep coming back to church. But our problem, like, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is that we don't want to get stay caught. The moment the true voice of God, the Holy Spirit, begins to speak to me and reveal my sin and my weakness and my shame, we want to walk away. We want to walk away. Some for good, some just for temporarily. 
I was like this for years. I didn't want to be state caught because it was too painful. It was too shameful. But the biggest difference in the story between the woman and the, uh, and the rest is that she stayed caught. And I encourage you to, to let Jesus ripple you apart. Let her show you who you are. And don't be afraid of confessing what is obvious to Jesus, even though it may not be obvious to anybody else, and you're afraid that it becomes obvious to people. Stay caught. Let him undo you. Let him expose you. The moment that you realize that being exposed to the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ is far better than being exposed to the ridicule and the shame by the people around you is the moment you realize that you can say. And finally, let's be caught up in him. Let's get caught up in Jesus. Let's, let's let this story and let's let the gospel catch us and grip us, not stocks, not dangers of coronavirus, not the election, not social justice, not BLM, not anything. Let us be caught up in him. Let us be caught up by story. Let it occupy our minds. And like the, 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 the warning that Jesus gave, even now, the moment that I allow the Lord to stop occupying and, and get caught up in his story and what, in his work, the moment that I become open to all kinds of other stuff that begin to manifest in sin, in captivity, in greed, in, 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 in worries, in anxiety, everything that we know is not from the Spirit. Let's get caught up in his words and let's get caught up in his saving mission to the world. That is the most exciting thing. I mean, last week when we heard Sean, you could feel his excitement and on many of us who's been praying. That is the most exciting thing in the world is to see this unfold, to see Rosarios and to be part of Rosarios in our lives. Quickly, how to catch another sermon, but typically we think this is Noah when we came back. You want to go fishing. Hours and hours of casting net. That's not the way. That's our way of fishing. The gospel way is actually different. See, the gospel way was, first of all, different from this picture in a couple of ways. One, Jesus is there. <laughs> it's not just us and our wits. Second, it's in a boat, and you let down the nets. And, and there's nobody who can let down a net by themselves. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? The gospel way of catching fish is by working together with the body of people under the command and the leadership of the Lord. The miracle was not that the disciples knew where to go fishing. The miracle was two things. First of all, the disciples were in the water with Jesus and they were directed by Jesus. And the second thing is this, Jesus directed the fish into their nets. Some of you are sometimes are kind of feel like, oh, where's my VIP? How do I go find my VIP? Let me tell you, you don't find VIPs. Jesus drives VIPs into, into your lives. All we gotta do is open up your nets and open up your antennas and look at the people that Jesus has brought into you. And see them, not the way that the Pharisees necessarily saw this woman, but see them as the way that Jesus saw the women. She was there for a reason. And finally, our nets are nets of grace. What won her over was Jesus' grace. And, and in our communities, what will truly bring, not only attract VIPs, but to actually bring them to encounters with Jesus, is going to be our grace, our graciousness. That is both winsome, and that is what helped people to come and stay.
Final exhortation. Jesus said to them, this is the final story of the book of John, right? Jesus, again, drives home this lesson for the third time. He, uh, uh, when he appears for the third time, he again does the fishing thing again. So Jesus from the shore now this time says, bring some of the fish you have just, he tells them to drop their net. Same thing happens. And they realize Jesus, Jesus says, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged them to the shore. It was full of large fish, 153. Why did he mention so many? But even with, without, with so many, the net was not broken. One of the biggest fears that we, I have, my family has, and I think the house churches have, is that when we really try to focus our lives on Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly, we're thinking, oh my goodness, we can't handle all of this in our lives. Not true. The nets were not break. We'll be able to manage all the VIPs that God sends our way by his supernatural power. And the second point, Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples are asking, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. What does he mean by that? The, the same fish that they caught is what they live by. May I suggest to you that if you get caught up in Jesus and his mission, what truly will empower us, what truly will give us reason to live, what truly will give us joy like nothing else is the fish that we catch. The most exciting thing in the world is to see the woman caught in adultery by Jesus. Rosario caught in by Jesus. Justin caught by Jesus. As we go forward, I pray that we become obsessed with the story, obsessed with the graciousness and the gracious words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his grace that transforms people's lives, not only 2,000 years ago, but today as well. Amen. Let's pray.